This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Science Fiction, and I'm Rob Wolf with the Leaky Space Blob edition. (laughs) With me today is a writer whose characters demonstrate the wonder of science by using it in clever and always unexpected ways to solve problems, especially life or death problems, like how will I survive years on Mars until I'm rescued when I don't have enough food, or How will I communicate with a sentient alien when we're both light years from our homes and don't have any language in common, but the survival of both our species depends on our mutual cooperation? The first question captures one of the primary dilemmas confronting the protagonist in Andy Weir's first novel, the runaway hit The Martian, made into a blockbuster film of the same name. While the second question captures one of the challenges facing the protagonist of Andy Weir's newest novel, Project Hail Mary, which is what we're going to talk about today. And Andy is with me now via the magic of Skype, and it is a pleasure to have you back on the show. Hey, thanks for having me back. And I should say, before we get too deep in a conversation, that there are going to be some spoilers. So I recommend you go out and buy the book now, read it, buy and then Buy a few listen. copies. Buy a few copies. Just... To be safe, you might lose one, you know, so you should buy multiple copies. Or you may you may want one in each room of your house so you can. Right. Just, yeah. Because you, know. you don't want to be waiting. Yeah. One in each room of your house. That's not a bad idea. Thank you. Yes. You're Thank wel- you, Rob. You're welcome. My pleasure. <laughs> Project Hail Mary starts with an alien invasion of our solar system, but. <laughs> sort of. Sort of. Well, I was going to say, but the aliens aren't the kind of hostile, sentient space travelers we've come to expect in science fiction. In fact, the invaders are quite small. So I thought maybe we could start by you telling our listeners about the existential threat at the heart of Project Hail Mary. Well, the core problem is that there is an, an alien microbe called astrophage, or at least that's what the human scientists call it. It is an interstellar, basically, mold or algae. It grows and lives on the surface of stars. And it, like mold or algae, it spores outward and, like, randomly in all directions. And sometimes one of them will find another star. And so that's that's how it lives. It collects large amounts of energy off of the star that it's living off of. It uses that energy to travel through space to a nearby planet 
to get the elements it needs to reproduce. And then it and the daughter cell, it does mitosis to reproduce. It and the daughter cell return back to the star, and that's its life cycle. Also, some of them are randomly sporing out into the cosmos because that's what it evolved to do. It's a microbe. It's about the size of a bacteria. It's not intelligent in any way. Doesn't care about us. <laughs> but it it gets to the point where there is so much of it on our sun that the sun is starting to lose luminance. It's getting dimmer. And even a 4 or 5% dimming of the sun, it would be fatal to life on Earth. The sun is remarkably constant in its output. And Earth life did not evolve to have a lot of variance in that. <laughs> and the Earth itself would go into a new ice age, food chains would collapse. It's a, it's a mass extinction event. So they have to find some way of dealing with that. <laughs> it is kind of counterintuitive because I think of the sun as so big and so hot. That's my scientific description of it. It's big and hot. Yeah, very accurate. Right. That that I think we could let it cool a little bit and, and it wouldn't make that big a difference. But but Ryland Grace, your protagonist, explains that if it dims by 10 percent, and I think someone made that calculation after a certain period of time, that's how much would happen. We'd all be dead. While it's true that the sun is very big and very hot, it's also very far away. So the amount of energy Earth gets is one tiny little fraction of the total output. And the amount of energy Earth gets will go down by whatever percentage the total energy output is. So you like the a total reduction of like 10% of all energy hitting Earth means there's 10% less energy for all the life on Earth one way or another. Means all the plants are getting less, the animals that eat the plants then have fewer plants to eat and so on. And the plants are not cooperative about this. The plants will not say, okay, we'll just drop our population by 10%. No, there will be, uh, all of the plants will basically starve for sunlight. <laughs> not all of them. And the reason that uh, something so small can have such a huge effect on the sun is for the same reason that algae blooms are so dangerous in the ocean. It's small, but if it's breeding uncontrolled, it doubles its population every time period and those doubling, doubling, doubling will eventually get to the point where it's reducing the sun's output. Let's talk about the mission at the the heart of the book. The title kind of gives a clue to the desperation humanity feels. It, they're putting all their eggs into one kind of Hail Mary basket, mm -hmm. and they're sending a spaceship with three astronauts to a star, and a relatively nearby star. It is a nearby star, I guess, as stars go. <laughs> Can you talk about the mission and what they're hoping to find? Yeah, uh, astronomers in the book notice that our sun is not the only one affected by astrophage. All of the stars in our local neighborhood are dimming. So astrophage is just kind of working its way through our region of space. All of the stars, that is, except for Tau Ceti, which is about 12 light years away. And for whatever reason, Tau Ceti is not affected. It's not dimming at all. And so they don't know what to do. They don't know how to deal with the problem, but they think, Okay, if we can send people or scientists or whatever to Tau Ceti and find out what is special about that system and tell us, maybe we can reproduce it here in our solar system and save all of humanity. So they create a ship called the Hail Mary because this is a Hail Mary, a last ditch attempt. By the way, this takes place now. This takes place modern day. And you may have noticed that we don't have anything remotely like the technology needed to do an interstellar space mission. 
but it turns out that the main thing we don't have is the fuel density storage. We don't have the ability to have enough fuel to get us to Tau Ceti in any reasonable amount of time. But that's where astrophage comes in. It's both a curse and a blessing in that it's causing these problems, but astrophage itself stores energy and each astrophage is a little spaceship, basically, capable of doing interstellar travel. So they farm it. They farm and breed up massive amounts of astrophage, and then they make a propulsion system that basically tricks the astrophage into thrusting and pushing the ship forward. There's an interesting section of the book where they're talking about how they're going to accomplish all the different elements to go on this trip. And there's this woman, Eva Strat, who's in charge, or Strat, Strat. I, I pronounce it Strat. I think actual Dutch people would pronounce it Strat. Exactly. So in, I'm mid, from the Midwest, we'd say Strat. She's, well, a, anyone, any, any American would probably say Strat. But sh- for what it's worth, she's from the Netherlands. <laughs> you know. There you go. But I say Strat, too. So I'm. There you go. Well, good old Eva. We'll just call her Eva. Yeah. Eh, Strat. Strat. Okay, Strat. <laughs> she's this tough project manager. She's basically given carte blanche to do whatever it takes. Like worldwide, she can tell countries what to do. <laughs> exactly. She walks into a room. She just orders people, you're coming with me. It's a power mad person's dream. But fortunately, she's very capable. And so the, the right person was trusted with this. If the ends justify the means. But what, what I was really interested and fascinated by was even though she could order anyone to do anything, part of her efficiency and her, her practicality shows through when she wants to just use off-the-shelf technology. She doesn't want to waste time trying to invent something new. She wants to just use stuff that already exists and somehow put it together to make this happen. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting. And also the way the scientific community, they were just sharing ideas, they were skipping peer review. All those things reminded me of COVID, actually, like what we've seen during this crisis where scientists have shared information and they've maybe sped up approval processes for vaccines and potential treatments. So I just wondered if you could just talk about the exigencies of the time pressure. And I was curious if you were still working on the book when COVID struck and if there was anything about what was going on that maybe informed the work. I I get asked that a lot, but actually, um, no, I had completely finished the book before COVID struck. So any, any correlation is pure coincidence, but it shows, you know, kind of the, I don't know, maybe some accuracy in my predictions of how the scientific community responds to a very serious crisis. Um, the other half of that question was, you know, she just wanted to use off the shelf oh, right. technology, the other elements that go into speeding a project like this. Well, one thing is they, they have very little time, even with the seemingly magical fuel of astrophage, it'll still take from Earth's point of view, it'll still take 13 years for the ship to get to Tau Ceti. And then it would take on the order of 13 years or 12 years minimum for any information of that 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 scientists find to get back to Earth. By the way, it's a suicide mission. It's a one-way trip. They don't have the ability to generate enough astrophage to allow the scientists to go there and then come back. It would actually take like 10 times as much fuel as a one-way trip. Because think of it, you have a you have the mass of the ship and then you have the mass of the fuel. Well, uh, a round trip means now you need enough fuel to take the mass of the ship plus the mass of the one-way fuel there. And, and the mass of the fuel is the vast majority of the mass. So it's a one-way trip, and the astronauts aboard are aware of that. They have these tiny little ships 
that are like have like a hundred kilograms of astrophage and they're like half a meter long and they just basically carry a USB stick as a cargo to go back to Earth. But anyway, they're in a huge hurry to make this ship because they know that once they launch it, there's still going to have to survive for 26 years before any information from Tau Ceti comes back. And so they, they were estimating they have about 30 years before the biosphere is in serious disarray. And 26 of it is going to be just travel time. And so they have about four or five years to make this ship happen. And this is like the most massive and complicated space mission in the history of humanity by leaps and bounds. So one of the things that Strat decides is, look, we don't have time. Uh, this The important thing is this is a, a bunch, some scientists and a laboratory at Tau Ceti. We need the laboratory to work. We need the lab equipment to work. And we don't have time to invent zero-G mass spectrometer. We don't have time to invent a zero-G scanning electron microscope. We don't have time to invent any of these things. So instead, she's like, I want this ship to operate with off-the-shelf, I mean, could be really expensive, but whatever, high-end, off-the-shelf scientific equipment that has millions of man-hours worth of testing in it. And so she said, we need to make the environment on the ship conducive to those machines, not the other way around. And so then they, that means the Hail Mary itself, the ship needed to have a centrifuge mode where it could separate into two halves connected by cables and then spin around to provide artificial gravity in the lab of 1G because that's what the, that's what the machinery is designed to operate at. And so it's funny, it's like this extremely advanced ship and everything like that. And in the laboratory itself, it has 110 AC power outlets because that's what this that's what this system uses. Well, it's interesting, too, that Ryland Grace, the protagonist, the, the astronaut at the center of the novel, he's a science teacher. He has a history of being a genius, really. He had had a promising career as a speculative extraterrestrial biologist, but he ends up being a science teacher. And he's obviously super smart, but, but he's a little like Strat because he has all these great problem-solving skills, but it turns out he can use a lot of the skills he knows really as a science teacher to solve a lot of his problems. And I was thinking how yeah. science teachers are going to love you and love this book because <laughs> you turn them through him, you know, into a galaxy traveling hero. Yeah, yeah. Middle school science teacher saves the day. Yeah, but it's true. I mean, you're sort of known for the accuracy of the use of science and you've created an environment where there's a lot going on that, that he can kind of use, not his slide rule, but the equivalent of, you know. <laughs> His his science chops. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if there's anything more to say about that. I don't know if you talk to science teachers about what they... Well, I didn't talk to science teachers specifically. I just created that character. Yeah, I mean, I, I did a ton of research for the book. <laughs> it was fun. I like the research. So what kind of research did go into the book? Well, I had to research relativistic travel. Like, I mean, Hail Mary gets going so fast on its trip to Tau Ceti that it's traveling, you know, a significant portion of the speed of light. And so, for instance, it from Earth's point of view, it took the Hail Mary 13 years to get to Tau Ceti. But for the crew, it took them four years because of time dilation. And that's a real thing. And, and um, also really interesting stuff like interstellar space, it's vacuum, right? Well, it's not exactly a perfect vacuum. There's maybe one hydrogen atom per cubic meter out there. But when you're going the, nearly the speed of light, not only you know you're traveling very fast, but 
also space is compressed and stuff like that. So it's like being hit with lots of hydrogen at relativistic speeds. You actually have first off a lot of radiation that you would experience from that because atoms hitting you at nearly the speed of light is radiation. <laughs> and second off, because there would be enough atoms hitting the ship that it would actually experience a small amount of drag, like wind resistance. So you have your your interstellar ship, something that's out in deep, deep space, needs to have some streamlining to it, which is kind of funny. What's interesting, too, is Grace himself has to discover this with us because, you know, when he comes out of his deep space, I guess essentially a coma, having traveled so many light years, he has to kind of regain his memory of how things work. So so we're learning it with him. Well, yeah, he has total amnesia at first. His brain's kind of mush from the uh, coma. Well, we find out more about why his brain is mush later, but... Right, exactly. But it's sort of risky. I was thinking there's another novel in what's happening back on Earth during those 26 yeah. years, because what are they doing? Again, like this Hail Mary, all the eggs in this basket, and they're just sitting around waiting? They're probably, yeah, it's a good question. And I didn't cover it because I already had enough story. I mean, you do get to see some of the efforts they're doing to try to extend how long Earth will last. You see some of them, like Ryland was still on Earth for some of those. And these are major geoengineering projects. And so uh, we can assume that they would continue to do whatever it takes to try to keep the biosphere running. <laughs> right. Suddenly global warming doesn't seem like such a bad idea when, you're, when the sun is cooling. Right. It's, um, they have to go out of their way. At one point, there's a whole scene in the novel about it, but they have to go out of their way to dramatically increase greenhouse gases because Earth is not getting enough energy from the sun, so they want the planet to retain as much heat energy as possible. And that, that is done via greenhouse gases. So once a curse destroying our environment, now these greenhouse gases are maybe the only way that we can save it. We have to spend a little time talking about Rocky. Okay. Now we're entering epic spoiler zone. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we don't need to say, you know, what happens with Rocky. But my question really is about the process of creating an alien race. You know, it seems like a really fun part of writing science fiction. It was. It was awesome. So for any of you who want the book completely ruined and you're still listening... Basically, once our hero, Ryland Grace, gets to Tal Seti and wakes up from his coma and starts getting his bearings, he almost immediately encounters an alien spacecraft. An intelligent you know, alien species is there in the system with him. And they immediately spotted him because of the uh, enormous amount of light coming out the back of his ship. That's his propulsion system. And they have the same propulsion system, or a very similar one. It also uses astrophage. And after some really fun first contacty stuff, we find out that, well, the alien ship just has one alien aboard, and he is like a 18 inches tall, maybe three feet wide, five-legged spider creature with a with mineral-like deposits all over its carapace. So he looks kind of like a rock. And so Ryland nicknames him Rocky. And Rocky is there for the exact same reason. His species lives on a planet in orbit around the star 40 Eridani. Their star has also been infected with astrophage. They also noticed that Tau Ceti was not 
not having any problems with it. So they also made their first interstellar journey to go look at it. But there's a lot of differences. Rocky's species, they're called Iridians, or at least that's what that's what our human protagonist calls them. Because by the way, their language is not anything that humans can pronounce. Their bodies have like these air bladders inside that squeeze air across five different sets of vocal cords. So it sounds like whale song, but with five different notes at once. So it's kind of whale chords, but they don't have, they're not pushing air out of their body. They're just pushing it back and forth. So it's like, but five different notes at once. And that's their vocabulary. And so Ryland has to make up words for all of their proper nouns. That's why he calls Rocky, Rocky. He calls their home planet arid because E-R-I-D, because it's in orbit around 40 Eridani, and he calls them Iridians. So that's the nomenclature he comes up with. And Iridians are actually, I just thought for fun, they are not as advanced as humans. Their technology is actually quite a ways behind ours. And there's a bunch of scientific disciplines and regimens they never discovered or invented. All of Rocky's crew died on the way to Tau Ceti because uh, they had never found out about the existence of radiation. They never knew it. Their planet has an incredibly strong magnetic field and an incredibly thick atmosphere, so no radiation gets to the surface at all. So not only are they incredibly susceptible to radiation because they never had to evolve defenses against it, but also they didn't know it existed until they made a spaceship that left their planet's magnetic field. And so, and Rocky was in the part of the ship where all the astrophage fuel was stored. And astrophage has a side effect of blocking any electromagnetic radiation. And so he was protected by the fuel that was surrounding him. But yeah, designing the alien was fun because I decided like, I'm sick of these first contact stories where it's just like a hot blue chick who wants to learn about lovemaking, right? I want this alien to be alien. He doesn't look anything like a human. He's a five-legged spider about the size of a Labrador. And his language is not compatible with humans. I mean, they can hear the same tones because we both species evolved to hear the sound of like footprints on rocks, you know, that, that frequency range, a predator sneaking up on you. That's what we evolved to hear. So we have a large overlap in the tones and sounds that we can hear, but They can't make the sounds of each other's language, and they have completely incompatible environments. Rocky's native environment is 29 atmospheres, as in 29 times Earth's pressure, 29 atmospheres of pretty much pure gaseous ammonia. And at about 210 degrees Celsius, which is like 450 degrees Fahrenheit. So a human in Rocky's native environment would die immediately. And Rocky, in our native environment, would also die immediately. For him, the pressure in our environment is so low, it's basically a vacuum. So it's like jumping out an airlock from his point of view. And then also, it's really, really, really cold (laughs) to him. And finally, there is no gaseous oxygen in the atmosphere of planet Arid. And so because of that, there are flammable parts of Rocky's body. So when exposed to an atmosphere that's 20% oxygen, as ours is, he would literally just burst into flames because he's really hot and he's really flammable. So oxygen is incredibly deadly to him. 
you've really thought it through. I wonder, was this something you just kind of woke up with or did you, you sort of have to piece it together? I mean, everything kind of logically follows. If you're this size and you're made of this and then you start thinking about, well, how do you eat and how do you get energy? Well, I, I wanted to design, you know, I've said like, okay, let's start from their homeworld and work outward. Okay, what do we know about their homeworld? Because they would have evolved to, you know, live in that homeworld. So their homeworld is a real exoplanet. 40 Eridani B, I think, is the actual name of their planet. And that is that is a real exoplanet. It really exists. And so I used all the data we have on that planet. It is, in real life, eight times Earth's mass. It's very close to 40 Eridani. It orbits the star very close and very fast. I think it's even closer to 40 Eridani than Mercury is to our sun. So it's a really close, tight orbit. So that means I was like, okay, it's going to be really hot. But I also had decided that there has to be liquid water. So the only way for it to be really, really hot and still have liquid water is for it to have a really, really high atmospheric pressure. Because you can heat water up as much as you want as long as you keep the air pressure high enough that it can't boil. That's how a pressure cooker works. It heats water up well beyond its boiling point, and it doesn't boil because the boiling point of water is based on both its temperature and the outside pressure. That's why water boils at a lower temperature in high altitudes. Like if you boil an egg in Denver, it boils at considerably less than what you think of as the boiling point of water. So I'm like, okay, so they're gonna live in an environment with a high atmospheric pressure and a lot of heat. Also their planet is right next to their star. So their sun must be blasting their planet with ions and stuff like that. So their planet must have a very strong magnetic field. That's what I decided there. And I'm like, okay, so I can work with this. Also its atmosphere being so thick means that none of the sunlight gets to the surface. So they don't have eyes. There's no light for them to evolve to see, but they have really good hearing. They have like stereoscopic, like very, very accurate hearing. They can construct their three-dimensional environment just from ambient sound, which sounds like a superpower until you realize we construct our 3D environment just from ambient electromagnetic radiation. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they're both equally really appreciative and amazed about what the others can do. Yeah. Which is cool. A apart from the fact that Rocky says uh, Rylan looks like a leaky space blob. You know, he looks yeah. like a spider. And they, But yeah. that's kind of an equality, too. They both kind of look gross to each other. Yeah, because Rocky has a, a rigid exoskeleton carapace, and he doesn't have any soft, squishy bits. Well, he does inside, but not outside. And Rylan, humans are all soft, squishy bits. And we got fluids coming out everywhere. And... That's not how Iridians work. Anyway, moving on, I, I designed their entire muscular sy system. Basically, they have two circulatory systems. Their blood is not water. Their blood is basically mostly liquid mercury. And one of the circulatory systems is so hot that it's actually hotter than the boiling point of water, even in their atmosphere, in their, in their pressure. So they can boil water with their hot circulatory system and they can cool it back down again with their cold circulatory system. So they have, or ambient circulatory system. So they basically have two separate blood systems and the way their muscles work is by state change of water. In other words, steam. So one of the, the, the hot blood, the capillaries around the muscle will make it expand. There are all these little basically expandable blobs with small amounts of water in them that expand when when the water boils and then the cold system will cool it down and the water will condense again and it goes back and forth like that and and their body is made of mostly inert material kind of like you have fingernails hair and teeth well you have fingernails and teeth rob uh, anyway <laughs> i have i just shave it off <laughs> 
But anyway, just like we have a small percentage of our body is um, non-living tissue, for iridians, the vast majority of their body is non-living tissue. Their actual biological components are like cells that swim around in the bloodstream and stuff like that. So the hot circulatory system is inaccessible to any of their living tissue because living tissue would die in there. The water would boil. So when they sleep, uh, why do they sleep? The reason they sleep is because they need to periodically shut down the hot circulatory system and let it cool to ambient temperature so those worker cells can go in and do whatever repairs are necessary for the body. And then they leave and then the hot circulatory system heats back up. During this time, they're not able to use their muscles because they don't have the ability to make their muscles expand. And so as a result of that, they are completely paralyzed. And during that time is also when their brain does its management. And so it's it's asleep. That's when iridians are asleep. And they're zonked out cold. They have no, they don't dream. They have no knowledge of the passage of time or anything. It's For them, it's kind of like being under general anesthetic, but it's a natural process. Problem is, iridians are so helpless when they're asleep. They can't wake up. They have no sensory input. They have nothing going on. So because of that, they evolved a pack instinct to watch each other sleep. So a village of iridians back in their stone age, some percentage of them are asleep and the rest of them will guard the ones who are asleep. And that's why iridians developed a pack instinct, which ultimately led to them having a civilization and stuff. Now, all of this, why am I rambling on about this? Well, all of this is because in the story, we see that Rocky has a strong social norm to be watched while he sleeps and to watch Ryland sleep. He says like, it's, it's a thing. It's not even like some overwhelming instinct anymore because at this point their civilization is so advanced, there's no dangers to them while they sleep, you know, and stuff like that. They are the alpha predator on their planet, same as we are on ours. Just as you are not likely to get eaten by a tiger in your bedroom, they are plenty safe, but they still have this social construct of observing each other's sleep. Like one of them will go to sleep just like, in the corner of the room, and you're expected to stay there and watch over him. And so Rocky wants to watch Ryland sleep and wants Ryland to watch him sleep. Yeah, that would be really annoying, I think. I would be like, I can't sleep with you watching me, but <laughs> but I guess to be respectful yeah. of the culture, you need to let that happen. Right, and, and it's not like they just stare at you like a creeper. They're just like, they want to be there and keep an eye on you. So think of it as being like, if you have a newborn, do you have any kids? Yeah, he's 23 now, but he was a newborn. He was at one point, say 23-ish years ago, he was a newborn. And it's like how you'd watch him. He'd be in the room with you. You wouldn't just constantly stare at him, but you wouldn't leave him alone either. You'd you'd be there, you'd keep an eye on him, make sure nothing's going wrong. And that's kind of how Iridians watch each other when they're sleeping. Except humans have invented baby monitors to, to, to yes. cheat that. But I guess you're always listening. So in a sense, you are present. It's true, but also Iridians don't even have computers. They never even invented that. They have the ability to broadcast information, though, so they could have had something like a baby monitor. Also, their hearing, you could have, depending on what the walls of your house are made of, you you know what's going on in the next room because sound can still get through the wall. Therefore, you know what's going on in the room next to you. So to an Iridian, 
like a solid steel wall, which conducts sound pretty well, would be like us to be a somewhat translucent glass. It'd be like a frosted glass. You can still kind of understand what's going on on the other side of that. It's very, it's amazing. I mean, you've done it. You've done it well. You do not look old enough to have a 23-year-old. Ah, thanks. I thought you were like maybe early 30s. Oh, wow. That's very sweet. Well, speaking of of looks, where looks matter, let's talk a little bit about Hollywood, because I think everyone expects that there will be a a Hollywood representation. And I think I read somewhere that that may be in the works, or I don't know how those things are, like they talk about it. Yeah. So you never know for sure until they actually start shooting film, right? But uh, MGM bought the film rights from me. Now, they didn't just option the rights, which is what usually what studios do. They bought them from me, which means they had to pay a bunch more. It's not like a, oh, we might want the rights, so here's some... An option is like, they say like, we're going to give you a small amount of... Small to a studio. Small amount of money to reserve the rights so that you can't sell them to anyone else for like 12 months or 18 months. And when that runs out, if we haven't bought the rights, then you can go sell an option to someone else or sell the rights or whatever. But MGM didn't do that. They said like, we want to own the rights now. Here's a big pile of money. So they did a full purchase all up front, which means to me that they're taking it pretty seriously. Like they're not they're not messing around because that cost them a non-trivial amount of money. I mean, it's still small compared to a studio, but it sure is a lot of money to me. <laughs> anyway, and we have Ryan Gosling attached to play the lead, which is awesome because he has the same initials as the protagonist, Ryland Grace. So, you know, he could bring his own cufflinks or whatever. And we have the directing duo of Phil Lord and Chris Miller set to direct. And they are um, known for, they made Into the Spider-Verse. They made all the Lego movies, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Also live action stuff like uh, 21 Jump Street. They were the original directors on Solo, a, a Star Wars story, before they had a falling out with Disney. And then Disney replace them and the movie was bad and i wonder if maybe they'd just done what phil and chris said it might have been a much better movie <laughs> wow well you've got it all down it sounds yeah it sounds like a great team it's coming along great also we have drew goddard working on the screenplay drew goddard wrote the adaptation of the martian so he did a great job there and i'm i'm assuming he'll do a great job again. So what, if any, is your role? I mean, do you just get to kind of watch or do you get, uh, do they ask you questions? On The Martian, I had no responsibilities at all. As the writer of the book, your only job is to cash the check. I mean, that's it, right? But on this one, I decided to flex a little bit and say like, okay, I want gross participation, which means I don't just want a single payment. I want that, but I also want a percentage of the box office proceeds. Mm. And uh, it was it was a it was a big swing for me because usually you have to be a bigger name author than me to get that. Like you have to be like Stephen King or J.K. Rowling kind of level, right? And I'm I'm not. But I was like, I want some. Doesn't have to be a lot. I'm not asking for a lot. Just a, just a wee percent. Just ask yourself what you would like to pay me for this, and then estimate how much money the movie will make, and what percentage of that is how much you wanted to pay me anyway. And that's what I want. I just want to break into the world of getting gross participation. Most of the studios said, we don't do that for writers. And MGM said, we don't do that for writers, but we do it for producers, so we'll make you a producer. So I'm actually a producer on this one, which means I do have some say, although not a lot, but I, I got I got final approval over the directors, for instance, stuff like that. But what I'm doing mostly is... So I'm, I'm included in all of the discussions and all the meetings and stuff like that. And that's neat. And my input is heard 
and I, I can make us think about stuff if I want. But mostly what I'm going to do is stay out of the way of the real producers, you know, the people who are actually producers who know what they're doing and let them do their job. Mainly, I'm, I'm, I'm a producer primarily so I can get some of that sweet, sweet box office money. <laughs> but I imagine that you're learning from the process, too. So you will be able to write a book about a movie in space <laughs> or you will be able to produ- actually do the pr- producing work. No, no, I could never be a, a producer. I, that's a skill set I don't have. I, I know really good producers like Aditya Sood is one of the producers on this one. And he was also on The Martian. And um, he's a really good producer. And I've seen the stuff that they do. And I just don't have that skill set. It's a lot of people skills, people management skills, logistical stuff. Uh, it's just a lot of stuff I just don't know how to do. <laughs> Hmm. Well, you always see there's so many producers, so I imagine people fulfill different functions. No, basically, you'll see a movie and it'll say produced by and there's a big, big long list. But really, only a few of them will be the real producers who do producer jobs. And the rest of them will be, you know, people who are getting a share of the of the pie, you know. So, for instance, Ryan Gosling is also a producer on this. And he's also I mean, he's a producer so that he can get a proper share of the money, which he deserves. He'll be, he's a big star and he'll be bringing, he'll be putting butts in seats and so on, but he's not really getting deeply involved in the producer decisions. I mean, he was involved in the director selection and stuff like that, just like I was, but the day to day logistics and stuff, especially if we get to the point where we're shooting fingers crossed, if we get to that point, he won't have time for any of that stuff. He'll be busy all day on the shoot, you know? Well, if they need some problem solving, like some energy thing goes out, you could run an experiment or something and then you'll, (laughs) so that's what they'll use you for, for those kinds of strange emergencies where you need to be really innovative with off the shelf. (laughs) Off the shelf equipment. Exactly. It's like, oh no, this lighting gantry isn't working. It'll hold up the shoot for three days. I'm like, wait, does anyone have duct tape? (laughs) Yeah. I can make my own. Even if you don't, I can make my own by melting down (laughs) this keychain. Believe me, I am nothing compared to what grips can do. Grips on a set solve everything related to this stuff. (laughs) If there's anything wrong with rigging, lighting, gantries, anything like that, the grips have got it solved. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. What's that? You want a light, a light right here to hover here and point there, even though that should be physically impossible? Yeah, we'll get that done. <laughs> well, that's a parallel between, I don't know what, your characters anyway. Set crew are amazing in the crap that they can do. You know, it's like if you imagine, like, how much time would it take to build a house? Well, usually it takes quite a while, but to build a set that is functionally building a house, they're like, do-do-do, we're going to get on that now. <laughs> Wow, very cool, very cool. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, If we talk any more, there'll be just more spoilers. So So I guess now is the time to to wrap it up. And I thank you so, so much for for sharing all your your great work and your great ideas and stories with uh, me and our listeners. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I've been talking to Andy Weir, author of... Project Hail Mary, published by Ballantine Books. And thank you so much for listening today. Please subscribe if you don't already and consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com composed our theme music. I'm Rob Wolf. I edit the show, which is part of the New Books Network. Marshall Poe is editor-in-chief, and Leanne Wilson is co-editor of the New Books Network. Take care and happy reading. I'll be back in a few weeks. 
with another great book and author. 